Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Bluefish Design in Tempe, Arizona. Bluefish Design is a full-service marketing ad agency that can take your company to the next level. What I mean by that is they can work with you on your logos, your branding, your interactive and digital media, your website design. Uh, they're really fun, hip, fresh. Uh, go check them out online, www.bluefish.com. That's B-L-U-F-I-S-H.com. And now for today's episode. Uh, today, actually, I opened an old bottle of Malm Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon. John opens a bottle of Cuda Fudra Cabernet Sauvignon, and we have a full Cabernet episode. So hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy. It's actually kind of a fun game trying to, when you pull out an old wine that you just don't know if it's going to hold up or if it had held up. It's just that mystery of, okay, let's see. That is one fun thing about wine is, is one, you first hope that it's not corked, obviously. And then two, if it's an old wine, just to be like, oh man, did it make it? Is it hitting a stride? Did I like leave it too long? Especially if it's one, let's say you only have one bottle of, and you took the gamble of letting it go eight, nine, 10 years. And then all of a sudden you open it up and it just fell apart. You're like, damn, I had so much more time to open it. Or, you know, maybe it's too young. You could be like, oh man, I wish I bought more. At least you could possibly go buy more, but if it's over the hill, that's, that sucks. I think the average person that's holding on to wine really typically only has one bottle. They will have a gift someone gave them. Yep. Uh, a sale at a store. Maybe they thought, "Ooh, I'm going to start getting into collecting," and you know they throw it in a cooler, and then you kind of forget about it. it. Gets tucked in the back, and five years later, you're like, "Oh shit, I forgot all about that bottle." I'm totally guilty of that. I mean, if I went through my cellar right now, out of the, I don't know, like roughly 200 bottles that I have, I think I maybe, maybe have one or two doubles. Uh, I have a few verticals that I built, which. I think it's cool. You know, I've got some 2012, 13, 14, 15 of some Wayfair or uh, like the, uh, the Predatory. We're trying to build up all the vineyards. But you're right. I've, I don't think I own more than two bottles of maybe one or two brands so that if it's bad, that's, that's it. The other thing when you're opening like an older bottle like this, usually it's, it's far to one side or far to the other side. Yeah. Rarely are you just kind of like, oh, that's in the middle. Usually it's like, holy shit, this aged amazing, or I don't think I can cook with this even. It's kind of like that hybrid. <laughs> That's you know? the worst is, is when you pop that cork out and the second you take a whiff from the bottom, you're like, oh God, it smells like teriyaki sauce. It's tough for the average person to kind of come up with how long to hold on to these and age these. I mean, we've talked about using some different websites out there, but still. Yeah, and then and on a website, you know, if you use a seller tracker or wine.com, that's still other people giving notes. And I, I use seller tracker a decent amount just to see maybe what other people say. And I was looking at one, and it was four reviews between January 1 of 2019 and today, basically. And they were all over the board. One was, it was terrible. It fell apart. It's not worth drinking. Another guy's like, decanted for two hours. And it's amazing. This is best. Probably could go another decade. And then one guy said it was too tannic for him. And the other person said there wasn't enough flavor. I'm like, well, that didn't give me any idea of what this wine is. You know, I once put my whole collection into Cellar Tracker. And it took forever. Yeah. But then the problem came is that we started drinking bottles. And I'd forget to take it out of the, the Cellar Tracker, you know, collection that I had built. New bottles would show up, and then six months later, all the stuff I had inputted is worthless because most half those were drank. I added a whole bunch of new ones. Mm -hmm. 
I've only seen one good system, and a guy had a barcode scanner yeah. in his house. So it would actually just beep. It's funny you say that. I was just thinking as you were talking, you know, if they had those QPRs or, you know, I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but the little thing where you could just scan it and, you know, it inputs it into a website that'd be designed. And then that website could send people like new codes all the time that you could just then stick on your bottle and beep, click it, type in the information. There you go. And you know, it's there or not. I know some bottles like Opus has numbers and bars on the back it shows you from where it came from and everything now if i remember right he actually had his own barcodes so when he got a case he he put the sticker on the back of the bottle and he scanned it and then that barcode was registered to that bottle so he printed it out himself yes okay that's cool but i remember we did an event at his house where we opened up a lot of bottles for all his friends and he's like do not throw any bottles away he goes every bottle at the end of the night leave it over here i have to scan them and take them out of my collection I was like, that's actually pretty brilliant, especially if you're somebody that has collections in multiple states. You know, some of these people have half their wines are here and half their wines are in their New York house or half their wines are in their Minnesota house. Yeah. And then you're trying to remember like, oh, shit, I got my wine club shipment. Where is it? Is 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 my Wayfarer in Minnesota? Is my Wayfarer in Arizona? Right. You know, and. Yeah, I can't. I, who were we talking to about this recently? Somebody, I think it might have been my dad or one of my dad's friends, but we were talking about we drank this wine. And he's like, yeah, I still have this bottle. It's amazing. And I'm like, dude, we drank that. Like, I know for a fact you and I sat down and we drank. He's like, no, I know for a fact we haven't opened it. And he texts me like a day later. He goes, holy crap, it's not here. And I'm like, I know. We had it for dinner one night. You just, it was one of those bottles we we were talking about. And we never should have opened because it was, we were definitely too drunk and didn't appreciate it the way we should have. I felt bad, but you know, well. <laughs> That's the other problem I've had in my life is that I often will start the night with my cheaper wines and then I finish off at the end of the night when I'm wasted. I'm like, let's open this. Yeah. I wake up the next day. I go, why did I, why do, did that? I do that? I don't even remember drinking it. You uh, know, that's the worst too, because it should be the opposite. Like once your good friends are around, you're like, all right, you know, start with something light and easy. Then you have your awesome wine as your second one, and then three, four, whatever after is not really gonna matter. <laughs> I mean, also, you know, a couple bottles of wine in me, and all of a sudden I'm a little more giving. I'm a little more. Let's yeah. just because. If, if I'm sober, I'm like, nope, we can't open that. We can't open that. We can't open that. We were just diving through the, the collection tonight trying to figure out what to drink. I'm sober. So I was like, can't touch that. Can't touch that. <laughs> two, two bottle Damien comes out and all of a sudden it's, hey, let's open this. But if we went to the brewery beforehand and then came home, I'd be like, we're opening up this 2001. We're going to open up this 1998. <laughs> like, <laughs> I just feel like a little buzz and all of a sudden I want to share and I want to dive into the collection. But when I'm sober, I'm like stingy as can be so on today's podcast we're gonna mostly just talk and uh, we're gonna drink some cab today that was the worst introduction you've done so far yeah probably (laughs) on today's podcast we're gonna talk my mouth (laughs) is so it's all the moisture got sucked out of my mouth when i just drank that cab so i was like i need to make this quick all right here here comes my slap back now it was a really tannic wine but it's actually really really tasty so yeah, so we uh, we could figure out what we wanted to do. It was one of those times we were just sitting there staring at the cooler like, what should we do today, you know? Sometimes we just want to record and we don't necessarily want to pick a theme. I yeah. think sometimes it's easy for us because we can say, okay, we're going to do Chile or we're going to do Malbecs or we're going to do Sonoma Coast. And other times we just want to talk about... Yeah, what's going on? What's going on with today's wine industry? What's going on in news, little fun topics? We just got to drink some great wines for the Super Bowl, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. Yeah, we did. But I think today's episode was kind of like, all right, let's just have 
some wine and just talk for a while? It's catching up, you know. It's our, uh, it's we're done with the Super Bowl. You know, we're catching up a little bit. We just had the Italian one come out the other day. You well, know, we were gonna do the year in review. In one of the last episodes, we forgot to do the year in review. Yeah, we didn't talk we about can, anything get around to it past, now. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, that's what happens. We just start talking, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, an hour and a half goes by. Yeah. I don't understand how people can record a podcast in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Yeah, I have way too much to say. Clearly, from the last podcast with the amount of coffee that I had, and I, I think I said every single possible word imaginable in that last podcast as I did the last 13 combined. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, <laughs> even I was watching like a news story the other day, and they were interviewing somebody, and it was like two or three minutes. They're asking them questions, and then they were done. I was like, that was like three minutes. I can't interview somebody in three minutes. It's no impossible. I, uh, I listen to NPR sometimes, and they'll be talking with somebody, and then you could kind of hear when they're like, all right, well, we got to cut you off right now. Sorry, go to the next thing. I'm like, dude, I was, I was enjoying that conversation. It was a five-minute long thing about something weird. And they just cut them off and say, that's it, time to move on. You're like, all right, well, crap. <laughs> yeah, I can't say anything in five minutes. There's no way, no. I'm amazed we say as much as we, or as little as we do in an hour and a half sometimes. I think we keep this at a good amount, like an hour and a half to two hours is a good amount. We can kind of gauge it by the, you know, how much wine is left in the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> kind of who we have on the show and everything in between. Yeah. It's a nice feel for it that there's no constraint to being like, oh, you have to be on a very specific dead set timeline, which is always fun about this. Yeah. Actually, that was something Kirti had mentioned. She said she was on a show and they were like at like an hour and a half. They're like, oh, we got to end it now. So you got to cut it off then. It's like with her, we... Two, two and a half hours, over two hour, fifteen yeah. minutes, and could have kept going. Could have, yeah. <laughs> that was, that's basically part one. That's always the fun th stuff, you know. You get your friends on here, you get people who are smart, they know the industry well, and you could just keep going. <laughs> I do have problems though doing liquor podcasts. See, I'm excited for all of the liquor podcasts we're gonna do because mm -hmm. I, I love it and I know a little bit, but I've never had the. I don't try liquor like I try wine. You know, we've got two bottles open. We're not gonna open two bottles of some liquor. You know, most likely. I mean, we probably will for like tasting comparisons. But like going back to the wine cellar thing, you know, if, if you have like the one bottle and it's bad, well, it doesn't really apply for liquor. If you have that really cool scotch, it's not going to be bad. And you're not going to have to use it all in one sitting kind of a thing. Have you ever opened a bottle of liquor and had it not taste right or be off? No. I mean, honestly, I don't know if I've ever had a bad one. I mean, I've drank some well stuff. <laughs> like any well bar stuff's going to be awful. But I've never had a bottle of liquor that I was like, I don't know if it's supposed to taste like that or not. Because every back bar has those one or two or three bottles that the people have to inventory every single time. And every single time they inventory it, it's the same level. Five years later, same level. Like Tia Maria, Galliano. There's Absolute Courant or whatever it is. That's another yeah. one. Like there's a couple things that seem like they're always on the back of every back bar and they never get poured. B&B. Well, there's a few that I imagine there's some well ones where the one above it is what's going to get used the whole time. Like if you have Jack, why would you have Evan Williams? I think it's Evan Williams. It's like it's in the exact same bottle. It looks like it has the same thing, but it's a dollar less. But nobody's going to do that. They're just going to get Jack Daniels. But then the stuff that's on the top shelf, I imagine that almost never, ever moves because it's a 25 to $500 shot. I mean, what uh, the Louis uh, Louis the Thirteenth? Almost what five hundred bucks a shot now or something crazy? Two fifty, five hundred for not, an ounce pour. I, I'm not sure what the average bar is charging nowadays, but still, that's where it is. Do you know that's a uh, common practice that if you order the last shot of Louis Trey, you get to keep the bottle? Yeah, yeah, because that bottle's worth more than the shot. Than the shot. Yeah, there's a couple of those that do that because they're made of actual crystal. 
But yeah, I, I've only seen it at one restaurant and it was when I was at Frazier's. And honestly, I sat there the whole time like watching it get a little slower, lower each year. And then I figured I'd be the last one to chime in and get that. But some baseball player came and goes, oh, there's four shots in that. I'll take the whole thing in the bottle. So they gave it to him. <laughs> That's another thing. I mean, when you have a bottle that expensive, you're really worried about something evaporating out of it. If it was there for five years, okay, maybe, maybe you lose an ounce. So yeah, I could see that, but... The Johnny Walker Blue that my dad had from the 80s, it barely dropped. He's got a uh, 100, uh, it was the Chivas Regal uh, Century Club. So he had 100 different malt scotches that were blended into the Chivas Regal blend. And it barely evaporated much. Um, so I imagine you're not really losing a crazy amount. Unlike a wine, like I think a wine probably will lose a little more than a, a liquor will. Plus it's corked. The way the cork is, it's meant to allow some air to come and go out of it. Yeah, I think if you have a bottle of wine that's aged with a screw top, that within 10 years, you shouldn't have any evaporation because it's sealed up tight. You'd think, yeah, probably not. You know, that's that was the whole thing of screw top versus cork and aging of wines and how a wine after 10 years in screw top, it's still fresh as a daisy. I mean, because it doesn't it's not oxidizing in the bottle as long as your screw top is done properly. Yeah. I wonder what alcohol content it has to be at for it not to be corked, you know, like cork tank. Because a lot of liquors still use cork. They got that T-top, you know, with the plastic part on top, but it's still cork that goes into the bottle. And, you know, because usually it breaks off if it's really old. But obviously it can't affect the liquor. So there's clearly a uh, alcohol percentage that kills that mold that ruins a wine. And it's got to be above, obviously, you know, it's above 16. Well, I've had a port that was bad, and that's around 20. It's got to be above that, that threshold where some liquor rums or vodkas or scotches with the corks are just going to, you know, prevent that mold from going and you're not going to get cork taint. I wonder if it would still affect the flavor. Like if I took a piece of cork tainted cork and threw it in a bottle of vodka, it would probably make that vodka smell like a wet dog after a while. You think? I don't I don't think it would. I think the vodka would kill that mold. That bacteria would die off and the smell would just die off completely? Yeah, I don't think it would absorb the smell at all and just kill it. Plus, if you were going to smell vodka, it'd burn your nostrils anyway, so... <laughs> well, well the, the, the thing behind vodka is it's supposed to be odorless, colorless, yeah. and tasteless. I mean, that rule was kind of broken when they started making flavored vodkas, but the original laws behind vodka were odorless, colorless, and tasteless. Ironically, it's like the number one thing you could smell when you open a cheap ass bottle. It smells like nail polish remover. And what got the most popular was all the flavored ones. I oh mean, my god, it's crazy! It was the greatest mixing drink ever because you wouldn't really taste anything. And then all of a sudden, one day, it's it's just it's crazy. Product marketing is that nobody out there was good enough. As I'm wondering, like there just wasn't good enough bartenders to make amazing cocktails during whatever period that those. Um, those drinks came out, those flavored vodkas. And so they went, well, we'll make a Fruit Loop tasting one. We'll make a whipped cream, a bacon, a raspberry plum, blah, 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 blah. And then so that way you could just make a cheap, crappy flavored drink versus going to your bartender and be like, you know what? I really like plums. Do you have anything back there that'll make it taste like plums or cherries or whatever? Well, I used to go to this one place that did uh, like screwdrivers with fresh squeezed orange juice. Yeah. And I used to love using like an orange flavored vodka in it because then it was just even more like orangey. Like um, absolute Mandarin. It was it was absolute at that point because there wasn't the big explosion of flavored vodkas out there. Really, all you had was like Citron, like Orange, which I think was the absolute. So there was only a couple producers doing it. And then the one that actually broke the mold was Three Olives. Was it Three Olives? I remember Three Olives. Three yeah. Olives Grape, Three Olives Cherry. And you started, people started having grape presses, and grape press yeah. became a drink. 
and it was the three olives grape and so, so forth. <laughs> soda seven is a press. I have not seen three olives anymore. I see all the Smirnoffs, Pinnacles, and uh, there's another one out there right now. But by the way, you know what's crazy is Tito's is now like the number one vodka. It's like going back to being bland, you know, where there's no flavor to it, and they're just now making cocktails and stuff. Because I, I see, I swear, Tito's is like the number one vodka. It's got to be. I wonder if they will break down sometime and go a different route and start doing a flavor, or if they're just going to stay true and do what they do and do it well. Oh, well, it's from Texas. It might be uh, Tito's barbecue flavored vodka. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to like flavored vodkas, they don't taste good, most of them. No, it's that chemical taste. It, yeah, it's that marker flavor, that scratchy yeah. sniff sticker flavor. It's not even real flavor. I mean, that was something that really impressed us when we went to Leopold's. Oh, yeah. Their infused liqueurs actually tasted like whatever. Actual, it was, yeah. Like, which, ironically, I didn't like because I was like, wow, it really tastes exactly like uh, they had the cherry one, the cassis one, the blackcurrant one. I thought the cherry one was so freaking good. Everybody that loved blew it. blew me away. Yeah, I wasn't my style. I just didn't like it. But you were using the, the blackberry one on your pancakes, weren't you? I did. I poured it on the pancakes <laughs> so in the morning. <laughs> it was so good. Dude, that blackberry on the pancakes was so Good. I mean, it's like alcoholic syrup at that point, I it guess. It basically was, man. It basically was. There was a decent amount of sugar left in it. <laughs> you know, I didn't bring any home. I actually wish now I kind of did. Yeah, me too. Because I don't really drink hard liquor, as we know. I mean, hard, hard liquor makes me hungover. Yeah. It does. I mean, I was even hurt in the morning after the the Kirti episode. Oh, I felt fine. <laughs> I think I'm at this point, like, just kind of a little used to it. It's weird. I could drink bottle after bottle of wine. I wake up and I'm... For the most part, usually doing pretty well. Beers, I can drink beer all day long, wake up, always feel fine. One cocktail, I am in trouble. Like, yeah. it, And as I get older, it's getting worse. Like the Amaros, I was hurting after the Cullen episode. Really? That's really weird. I get those obscure massive hangovers where I could drink a lot and go hard and I wake up and I'm like, oh, I feel a little off or I'll have one glass of wine and a beer and I wake up at three in the morning, four in the morning wanting to die. I'm like, what in the hell happened? Where that didn't work out the way I wanted to. I mean, it's that mix. Remember uh, when we were in college, you had that that term they used to say. It was what? Uh, liquor before beer makes you sicker. Liquor before beer, never fear. Beer before liquor, never sicker. Yeah, that's what it was. Oh, yeah. Beer before liquor or beer before liquor, you're in the clear. That's what we were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that actually applies to anything. It does. Because if I could have a couple cocktails... And then go out and have beers was never a big deal. Because at that point, you got a nice little buzz going. And a few beers on top of it was actually like stepping back a step in the alcohol. Whereas if I drank beer all day long, I start drinking cocktails. Then all of a sudden, I'm like wasted. Yeah. And I'm spitting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sounds about right. You ever heard heard that thing where they say if you were spitting, if you're laying in bed and you got the spins to put one leg on the ground and it stops it? Yeah, I've heard that before. It doesn't work. No, it doesn't. (laughs) You know what stops it? Throwing up horribly. (laughs) It could. Or greasy cheeseburgers. Yeah, anything greasy. I think that's why I was so happy I lived on a corner with a a Taco Bell and an In-N-Out and Jack in the Box and other garbage food. Because I'd be like, oh, well, that's where we're going. We just didn't have Uber Eats at the time. So we actually had to walk to go get our food, which I think helps sober everybody up a little bit. I've learn the value of the carne asada burrito <laughs> it really does help dude there's nothing better than mexican food when i'm really drunk i swear it's my favorite thing to eat after i've been drinking there's something hearty about having like a burrito with beans and rice and chicken just filling up your stomach <laughs> that's why probably mexicans can drink all day and eat a burrito and wake up the next morning at five o'clock in the morning and go to work and it's never a problem yeah, it's true. I don't think I've ever gotten up at 5, 6 in the morning after a drinking thing and didn't want to go, oh, I'm definitely not going to work. <laughs> yeah. 
And I mean, every Mexican I've ever known, no matter how much they drink the night before, they always make it to work the next day. I don't think I ever partied harder than with anybody in my entire life. And then the Mexican people I was working with at R&R, those guys partied, man. It was fun. It was always family stuff. You know, we do it at the house. They'd have a cooler of all their beers and just somebody would put like a, I guess more or less like a skillet or like a hot plate and everybody just making food, throwing down. Man, that was fun. Miss those guys. Yeah. All right. So Cabernet Sauvignon today. Yeah. So Cabernet, you know, my buddy used to make a cab. He called the father. Actually, it's his cab franc that he calls the father. Okay. Because to him, he's like, this is the father of Cabernet Sauvignon. Which it is. Which it kind of is. Um, Cabernet is kind of a crossbreed. It's, uh, yeah, Cabernet Sauvignon is the child of Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. For those that don't know that out there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because people are like, I don't like Sauvignon Blanc and I don't like Cabernet Franc, but I love Cabernet. Yeah, which is weird. (laughs) How did Cabernet become like this king of all the wines in America? I would honestly have to assume that it was because you could plant it. It's like the number one grape you could pretty much plant anywhere and have a consistent product. And then it wasn't until, obviously, Napa did its own thing that, you know, it blew up, basically. Not that it wasn't blowing up in Bordeaux by any means, but, yeah, once uh, once they could find out, you get the same consistent kind of flavors. It doesn't go crazy on terroir like a Pinot Noir will. But, uh, yeah, consistent product, and it can literally be planted anywhere and grow. You can go down all the way to Temecula. Um, there's some in the Baja, all the way up into Washington, and, shoot, even cold weather, it kind of works a little bit. So how many, you've had Cabernet, obviously, from Washington, California, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had it from, like, Virginia or anything like that? I can't say I've had one from Virginia. I've had one from New York. Um, I've had one from Georgia. Uh, we did the, the Costello Rampanello one. I've had that one from Italy, um, <laughs> if I said that right. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, wow. There was a couple extra syllables in there, but yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't wave my hands around. That's why. Um, yeah, I, I think it's like the one great but Arizona cab. There's a vineyard now that's got a couple of theirs going up. I mean, we've drank a number of Super Tuscans yep. that are Cabernet based. Um, we've had a number of Priorats probably that were Cabernet based. Yep. I wonder, yep. probably these top two or three most planted grape varietals in the world. I think, if I'm not mistaken, Chardonnay is number one. And then I would not be surprised if Cabernet was number two. I think there's grape varietals that they use for jug wine that are more produced because of the yields. Grenache is the biggest one for jug wine. Pace. Some of those are widely used in other countries where they're either distilling it or they're making jug wine. So they just want the highest yields they can get out of it. Yeah. I mean, the versatility, too, of cab. I've started to see more cab rosés because it's a bigger rosé. Like, it's a rosé for cab drinkers. Versus like a Provence-style rosé. Because I had one from uh, Obelisque, um in Washington. And dude, it was a huge rosé. It was big body. There's actually some tannin structure to it, too. <laughs> I'm guessing that Cabernet is so popular amongst even winemakers because it's a good basis for being a winemaker. It's got a good foundation. If you want to make it oaky, you can make it oaky. But you don't have to. If you want to make it... You know, I think you can go with a lot of different styles with it. Yeah. Whereas if you end up with like a Pinot Noir, what can you really do with your Pinot Noir? You can't go crazy on oak with Pinot Noir. It'll ruin it. I mean, you can go crazy on oak with cab and it'll just be in giant oaky cab. (laughs) I mean, you could use tons of new oak. You can use tons of, you know, a little bit of new oak, a lot of used oak. You could do a lot with punching down your caps with Cabernet. I think there's a lot more manipulation you could do with Cabernet than maybe some other grapes. Maybe. It's It's like, uh, it's, it's definitely a grape you can beat up. 
like whether it's in a tank or whether you do it in barrel, if the weather comes through and it's a bad year, you'll still get, you know, the cab flavors out of it. It's like I said, it's just one of those all around versatile grapes, you know, it's the Russian grape. You could throw anything at it and it'll keep working. (laughs) And there's great tannins in it. It ages well. Now with tannins, you can get tannins. Yeah, it's good acidity, good tannin. You can get tannins from five different things. And those of you who don't know what tannins are, that's the kind of the grippiness that you get out of wine. Yeah, tactile. That, that's what made me mess up when I was talking in the beginning because it pulled all the moisture right out of my mouth. <laughs> so I describe it kind of in the beginning because when I was a kid, I used to peel my grapes because I was just a weirdo. And I would eat them separately. A little bit. Yeah. So I'd actually peel the... But when you take a, peel a grape skin off, the skin itself is very bitter. Whereas when you th- taste the inside fleshiness of the grape, it's sweet. So... Or like an apple. Say you're eating a red delicious apple. The skin of a red delicious apple could be bitter and draw the moisture out of your mouth versus the inside of that apple, which is going to be a lot sweeter. Yes. So you can get your tannins naturally through stems, seeds, skins, or you can get it through manipulation through oak or through powder. Yeah. And there are a lot of producers out there that use tannin powder. Yes. By law, you don't have to put it on your bottle. It's not in your ingredients. Not in this country. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. I don't think you have to do anywhere. It doesn't You don't have to list tannin powder in Europe. You don't? I, that would be the one place I would have assumed would be like Italy, France, or Germany would list that. I don't know why they would use it in Germany, but in France or Italy, I could I could see that, especially since, you know, recently Italy got nailed with that massive uh, fraud problem, like what, a month ago? Not even, like two weeks ago? That's, again. Again, Yeah. <laughs> God, it's like, it's like every other year. Surprise. One step forward, two steps back with that country sometimes no with joke. their wine. It's because they're always trying to scam something. I and mean, this is basically, it was just the Brunello scandal now not all over the place. It was, they were caught blending other grape varietals into stuff that they were selling as a known varietal. Yeah, as their high end stuff. So they could have more bottles of it, make more money. I mean, it's horrible. It really is. I mean, it, ru- it really does ruin their reputation. Now, someone who, who has a wine in their cellar is second-guessing that wine in their second, cellar. Yeah. And when that wine comes back out next year, they're debating if they want to buy it or not. Right. Like, do you want to support the guys that obviously did what they did by manipulating the wines that they were putting together? Did they release any of the producers? Not yet. They're going to. They've, they've already got the article that says, not the article, but like more or less the... Um, the affidavit or the complaint or whatever it is that says, hey, here's all the wineries. For the most part, they've said, here's the regions that were affected by this from Puglia, Romania. They have all the, they have them all down, but they put the regions first. They'll put the people out later once they officially arrest everybody or seize all the wines, depending on where it's all at. It's, it's the one thing about, you know, when you make so many laws, when you make tons and tons and tons and tons of laws to purify something, which I get, it's how you get the Barolos, it's how you get the Barbarescos or the uh, Brunellos, eventually somebody is going to break that law because they wanted to blend in something because, A, they're most likely doing it for money or maybe, just maybe it was a bad year and that Merlot is going to go great with that Sangiovese. So they added to the Brunello to beef it up just a little bit, just add a little percentage in there. I mean, you... You can blend something in and not sell it as what you're trying to fake. You know, hey, if yeah. I'm going to blend a little Sangiovese with my Cabernet Sauvignon, I can't call it now Brunello. You know, however, if you do that and people really like it, come up with a new name for it. You know, Super Tuscan. Yeah. You know, this is this is a blend of Sangiovese and Cabernet and possibly some other stuff from Tuscany. 
at first, the Italian government didn't recognize it. They recognized it. It was an IGT. It was table wine. So Sasakaya for years was table wine. Table wine. I mean, which doesn't sound very pleasant usually. I no. mean, that's not a $200 bottle of wine. And now they've gotten their classification because after a number of years and after global recognition, now Super Tuscans is something people want to drink. But when they first came out, it was kind of like, you're doing what? Yeah. But they didn't. They weren't trying to hide it. That's no. the thing. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to beef up my production and throw a little something extra in there. Yeah, but I guess that's kind of why like, I, I don't like where we might go this direction in America is where people are going to slowly say, hey, uh, this is how you have to make a cab. Like if, if they do, you know, the French style or the Italian style, let's say in Napa, and somebody's like, well, we need to make it exactly this way, picked during these dates, used with this oak and blah, blah, blah. Well, somebody eventually is going to cheat that system and then it's going to get caught. It always happens. They had a huge problem with the the French rosé for, I think it was last year's harvest. Um, they were trucking in all this bad, not bad, but inexpensive, cheap rosé from Spain. They were just trucking it across the border into Provence and blending it all together so they could make more for the American market because the American market exploded on rosé. And they had the French guys that were out there literally going after what looked like gas trucks, stopping them at the border and draining them out. I mean, it's it's going to keep happening as long as people are buying a product. It was a bad problem in Cote d'Aron. I mean, in the Rhone region, when I was just actually meeting with some producers recently, they were telling me how a lot of people had gotten caught and the price of Chateau Neuf de Pop and Cote d'Aron is going to start going to the roof. Yeah. Because there's only so much of it produced in the region and the global demand is very high. When all this fake wine came in, it lowered the price down. Well, without all that fake wine, now the, the demand is still high for the, for the right wines, but there's not the, the supply. Yeah. And the supply was, it, the fake supply is gone. So the real producers are going to raise their prices. Yeah. And you're going to start seeing it. When it hits the global market this year and next year, Cote de Rome prices are supposed to go up quite dramatically from what I was told, just because they don't have to compete with the fake wine. Imagine being a producer, you know what it costs to make your wine. You're like, how the hell is this hitting the market at right. two euros a bottle? I can't make, I can't even put it in a bottle for that price. Yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. Cause then that makes me wonder how many people do that in not just wine, but like beer, you can't, I don't see how you could do it with beer. You know, if you make a tank of beer, that thing's going straight to a keg or straight to bottles. So I don't know how people will be able to manipulate that. But like liquors, that's where you could really, mess around with that like let's say you've got a 30 year old scotch and i'm pretty sure they take averages because like port is an average uh, if they're making a tawny port it's a blend of 35 to 45 years worth of port and they put it in together but like i'm not a hundred percent sure on the scotch side of that so let's say you're taking a 30 year old scotch and you've got a thousand barrels of it let's just say and as you're putting it together you go well we could sell a thousand one hundred worth so take that stuff over there and blend it in there so it's like less than 10 percent. nobody will notice and who would who would notice that they did that? So I just, there's With, probably a lot of shady shit out there if it, you look deep it, enough. And, and beer doesn't have the pro, like the, the prestige that a wine has. Because a wine, you get one shot once a year to make it. Yeah. And then you're on to the next thing. And what's the thing about wine is that there's only so many bottles produced of that vintage. And every time somebody drinks a bottle, the rest of the bottles become more expensive. Yeah. So when half the vintage is gone... People that are holding on to the next half, it gets more expensive. That's what's happening with Burgundy right now. That's why these auctions are out of control. Yeah. Because people want to buy certain lots or certain vineyard sites in Burgundy and Bordeaux. But every time someone opens a, a cork and drinks it, every time we open one on the show, everyone else's becomes more expensive. 
And especially in a place like Burgundy, where you have that one uh, Von Romney, and they make what, maybe 10,000 bottles a year? Maybe. I don't even think it's that many. Let's just, let's just say 10,000 bottles a year from there. Well, if you're Stone Brewery making Stone Ruination, you can make that all year round, every day, all the time. And if you want, you could build a brewery on the other side of the country. You could build in another country, and you can make Stone Ruination. And the only thing that really will change would be your water. Yeah. Because you can you can bring in your malts, you can bring in your barleys, you can bring in your yeasts. Yeah. As long as you're getting them off in the same place, you're going to keep a consistent product. The water will make a change. Yeah. I know that. Um, maybe the altitude based on your brewing temperatures, can make it change yeah. too as you're brewing it. You could you could reproduce it every week. You could. You can't reproduce Von Romany every week. No. And you're never going to have a bad batch of beer unless somebody really, really, really screwed up. Versus all of a sudden, oh, we're going to go pick tomorrow, and then hail comes in, and now you have no crop, and now you have no wine. <laughs> we were talking about it last week, so we should probably bring up is Tahiti. Oh, yeah, Tahiti wine. Tahiti just did its 50th vintage in 20 years. That's so crazy. <laughs> they're, the way their weather works out there, they're actually able to do two to three vintages per year on their wines. That's so amazing to me that, A, there's wine in Tahiti. And the crazy thing is, is that you get two vintages. Out. Like, I'm blown away by that. I am, too. What, what year do you use in the bottle? Do you use, like, 2013A and 2013B? <laughs> <laughs> like, do, you, do you think there's anybody out there cellaring and storing these bottles? Spring release and fall release? I mean, how do you work that? Spring, literal spring, fall, and possibly and winter. Possibly something in the middle, like <laughs> release one, two, and three. There's, they got to come up with some name for the in-between, I guess. I mean, because people collect vintages. Maybe you like Tahiti wine. You're like, well, I got the spring release. Can't wait for my fall cab now, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what they age it in, like if they age it in like coconut husks or something god i mean to do 50 vintages in 20 years that's crazy and you know it's not that big right there's probably like five to a handful of producers i'm sure doing dude it's probably on the steepest slope of the like volcano though i would i'd be intrigued to try that there's a beer from tahiti that's actually really good i see it here every now and then it's light you know easy drinking beer I feel like uh, there's a vacation being planned right now as we're looking at each other. <laughs> I mean, dude, I'll go to Morea or Bora Bora or Tahiti any day. Those islands are stunningly beautiful. I will eat fish, drink their beer, drink their wine, which God knows how that is. I bet they make some great rum out there. There's probably some nonsense drink that some random guy is making off in like the middle of the forest. <laughs> so let, let's let's kind of go back, and I want to talk about this, one of the wines I open. because right. Yeah, let's talk about these cabs a little bit. Uh one came out of my collection that has been sitting in my collection now for about 10 years. Um, this is a wine that has only been held by pretty much one other person. Um, this wasn't an auction wine. It wasn't a, this was something that I sold. There was a pallet produced. We sold the entire pallet in one afternoon. I opened a bottle, took it to like two or three buyers and they said, I'll buy everything you have. Nice. We as a distributorship, this is a guy who makes Pinot Noir. He makes some other stuff as well. He does some cabs, some zins, and some other blends. But when I discovered this producer, he was a Pinot Noir producer. And he said, hey, guys, I got cab. And we're like, we want some. As our sales reps, we fought over it. We got our allocation. Everybody sold their allocation the day it arrived, <laughs> except for one person. The next day, we stole that person's allocation and sold their allocation, <laughs> too, because it was that good. And I threw a bottle in my cellar. And this is one of those ones that kind of trapped in the back. It's been in a cooler part of its life. Part of its life, it wasn't in a cooler. And it, I almost forgot I had it until just now. And I just said, let's go ahead and open it. 
The only Cabernet you have in your entire house. Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> I don't really drink much Cab. So. Yeah, man, it's not your thing. But it's a 2006 Malm Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon from Sonoma County. Brendan Malm is a small one-man operation. Um, I believe he's got a couple people helping him out in the winery now. But as a general, he's a one-man operation. Doesn't even have a website. His website is his logo, and that's it when you go to it. he He's, he's a crazy man. He puts his cell phone number on every cork. If you look at the cork that pulled out, that's actually to his direct cell phone. You can call him. You can oh, text wow. him. Yeah. It's, it doesn't go to a winery. It doesn't go to a, an answering service. I almost want to say it out loud so everybody listening could just randomly text him. <laughs> I used to do this at wine events. I'd make every single person at the wine events text him or call him while we were doing tastings with his wines. That's but really cool. I, that'd, be, that'd be really cool to have your phone constantly ding, drinking your wine, ding, drinking your wine. <laughs> His wines are only available in like two or three states. I know he's not available in Arizona anymore. He's pulled out of the state. I think he directs ships to a couple states, a couple people that want his wine. But for the most part, he sells every single thing either through the tasting room or through one or two retail shops in California. Yeah, and he's over in Heldsburg, I believe. He's just off the Hillsburg Square. Um, yeah, he's in like a little warehouse spot. I've been there once. Yeah, he's a really cool dude. Yeah, super nice. I mean, he's a Sonoma State graduate my age. He actually... He actually bought his first barrels with his credit card. <laughs> um, if I remember the story right, his one of his first wines was actually named Cross Blend. And it's not because it's a, a crossed blend. It's because the guy who lent him money to buy some of his first barrels, he was too scared to ask his dad. So he asked his buddy's dad. <laughs> and so and his, I guess that guy's last name is Cross. Okay. And, and that's where he came up with his Cross Blend. Um, his wines, though, his Pinot Noirs were always the most stunning Pinots we sold. They were sometimes difficult to sell because nobody knew them. You're competing against some big names, yeah. and you put it on the shelf. But his his labels always had these Tiffany blue. They they were like a shining light at the end of the the shelf. It is right. It's perfect. It is that Tiffany blue. If if I put that wine on a retail shelf and I stood at the end, I could pick out his wine before anybody else's wine. Yeah, kind of like with our logo. The, we went bright blue on our logo for yeah, the so podcast because you, you can see it. I could look at 500 podcast logos. Blur my eyes, and I know my logo. That's a good point. Now, this was the first cab he had ever, I'd ever seen him do. I know he had done some blends with it, but this was the first 100%. I wanted to throw a bottle in the cellar just for fun to see what happened. I think half of them were waxed, half of them weren't. He waxes his bottles the, the, sometimes. <laughs> the, 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 the wax, his waxing machine is his like grandma's crock pot. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. It was there last time I was there. It was like two years ago. When we went to the winery, there's literally, there's a folding chair sitting in the barrel room with like a cigar ashtray and the crock pot. And he probably <laughs> just sits there smoking cigars, dipping bottles, yeah. you know? What a life being a winemaker. Dude, I, a couple of the bottles that you had, actually, I think he gave to you because there was no labels on them. And we were guessing for the longest time because they clearly either fell off or, you know, he just was like, here, try this one. And we were like, what is this wine? <laughs> I do a co I do have a couple of his bottles that are shiners back there. Yeah. Um, I believe they're cross blends. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not quite sure because they're shiners and they've been sitting back there for a little bit. Yeah, I only recognize it because, you know, the cork's got a very distinct, you know, symbol on it. Obviously, I now that I know his phone number's on there, too. And I'll tell you, it's so important, and this is something that winemakers forget about, is how important labeling is. They think people are just going to buy their wine because their wine is good, and it's package. Package yeah. means so much. The average consumer looking at a wall of Cabernets in a store, they walk up, and they're looking at 350 California Cabernets. Which one do they pick? They pick either A, the one they recognize, or B, the one with the cool label. 
Yeah. It's always the cool label ones, too. It's If it's not a brand that you don't already know, it, the first thing people gravitate towards is a really cool bottle. It's something that catches your eye. Because if you're at Total Wine and you quickly go from left to right and across, the first thing you're going to see is the most vibrant color and the one that stands out. You know, you could have a unique bottle, but... Yeah, it's that color, and that is a very distinct color. That that is a perfect way. Is that Tiffany blue? It's it's like a neon light shining, you yeah. know. And then he'll he'll put red wax on the top a lot of times. Um, the bottles of these, he actually had gray wax or like silver wax on them. Yeah, there was no wax on this one. bottle. Oh, so that's right. It's a silver top. I pulled it off. Yeah, it was just like a regular yeah. foil capsule over the top of it. Yeah, I imagine being his very first vintage, he probably didn't. No, to come back later on and do all the red stuff. But to me, there's something special about the small one-man operation or two-man operations because they truly touch every single bottle. Every bottle of this guy's wine that you buy, he touched by hand. <laughs> we used to always say, too, it was like, depends on how much he had to drink before he started labeling. Yeah. Because sometimes you get his labels and they'd be a little crooked on the bottles. They'd right little now, off. So yeah. This one might not even be straight because, I mean, when you're hand-labeling stuff, ah, it ends up that way. Enough. But versus a giant conglomerate of company that is running 10,000 bottles an hour across their bottling line, and they have, it's like a factory. There's no yeah. care put into that wine. You look at their barrel room, and their barrel room is just this, this giant room with you know, tanks to the ceiling. Is there truly care put into every bottle? Which is probably not. They probably have set, you know, uh, we need to be here at this time, and we have, uh, it needs to be this many days on, you know, it's uh, Lee's, and if it's uh, macerating this time, and then we'll use the exact same cooperage every single time because we know we're going to get the same flavors, and we do exactly 12 months and then take it off. There's no constantly tasting and trying and seeing where it's going. It's it's everything you can to have a consistent product. And I was scared that, if, honestly, I thought there was about a 90% chance we were going to open this, and it was going to be done. Yeah, there's a pretty good chance of that. It wasn't stored properly. I don't know where the grapes were grown. I think he probably had a buddy that maybe had a couple acres that he happened to get a little bit off of. Because at that point, he was primarily growing Pinot Noir and Syrah. I think he was growing Chardonnay for his ex-wife or something like that to keep her happy. (laughs) (laughs) And that's about it. Just makes like a little barrel every year. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... If I was a winemaker and I could keep friends happy, I'm like, all right, I know how to keep you happy, you happy, you happy. I'll do a little Syrah, a little Pinot. Right, you just have one barrel for your friend. You're like, oh, that's my friend's barrel. That's They get to keep all that stuff so they don't hound me all year. I believe he did a barreling for like his wedding once that was like, we drank that together once, walking through his parking lot smoking cigars. Nice. <laughs> Cutest thing is I remember when I showed up to his house, I barely knew him, and I showed up with a bunch of Soprasada salami. <laughs> and his daughter was like, What's that? And I'm like, it's so presided. She wanted some. I was like, Randy, he's like, sure, let her try some. So she tried it. She literally throughout the night was like, more salami, please. More <laughs> salami, please. I was like, your daughter is amazing. I'm <laughs> like, that's called parenting done right. Yeah, just here, keep eating all this. <laughs> like, not, it's not, hey, I want more candy. I want more cookies. <laughs> I want more salami. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> That that was. I wish my parents raised me on Soprasada and Capicola and prosciutto and that's stuff. What, yeah, that's what I was raised on. I'm amazed my heart still works sometimes. I was raised on blood sausage and pierogies. <laughs> pierogies. <laughs> what's uh? What's that thing from the fish concert? That's the handball, a pocket, pocket ball, or what? Uh, that food. You know what I'm talking about. You're talking about doughboys. Doughboys. Oh my god, those things are so good. Uh, Saratoga. It's like a suburb of Saratoga. There's this little tiny place that does these things called doughboys. It's like a potato chicken cheese pocket that they serve at the concerts that are unbelievably good. They're so damn good. They are man. so good. So at, at halftime of the shows, we'd always go buy 
five of them. Uh-huh. Yep. You'd eat three of them and put two in your pocket. Yep. Pocket, pocket <laughs> doughboys. And then got a pocket doughboy for later. Troy, Troy pulled one out of his pocket and handed it to me. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Did you just hand me food out of your pocket? And he's like, <laughs> just shut up and eat it, man. I was like, oh my God. It was so good. It was the first time I ever had one like later on in the night. It was Schwartz. And he just looked at me. And he's like, you want a doughboy? And I'm like, where are you going to get a doughboy right now? He goes, out of my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, yes, I do. <laughs> Even my sister, uh, she'll be at SPAC and she'll be at a concert and she'll te- she doesn't send me pictures of her having fun. She doesn't send me pictures of the band. She sends me pictures of the Doughboys. Of the Doughboys. Every oh, time. It's so funny. Why I can't wait to go back there in July and eat a Doughboy. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun this summer. Yeah. So I'll tell you, this this 2009 is still lively and young and it's got still a good amount of acid in it. I mean, it's drinking unbelievable for me right now. Yeah. What are we at? So, yeah, 2006, it's a 2006. 13, 13-year-old 13 13-year-old, yeah, that probably wasn't stored well. This, to me, is the special thing about aging wine because it really does suck when you open a bottle of wine and it's toast. Especially something cool like this. It's one thing if you can keep getting it versus, you know, he's... I don't even know if he makes a cab still. I know we. I, I know when I was there a couple of years ago, he made a cab because I brought one back. But, unfortunately, I forgot that we had packed them, so they were under my seat for like a month in summertime and they were toast they were toast and i was like god damn i can't believe i did that i was so mad at myself about that one but i'll tell you the 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 great thing about opening an old bottle and having it be stunning is that it means even more to you then because you're like especially because you know the guy and you know what he comes from and you know what he's done it's that feeling too of okay I held it just long enough. It's drinking good. It's such a great surprise. You know, I mean... That is one nice thing about drinking in general. You know, you can open up a lot of beers and be really like, oh, man, that's such an amazing beer. I should go get a six-pack. Or if you see it on tap somewhere, you can drink it. But if you have a... Even for the most part, if you have a wine, and obviously you drink something, whether it's at a dinner or somebody else provides it to you, it can definitely change your entire perspective of what something like that can do. And all of a sudden you can have an appreciation for a whole new grape you never had or for a whole new label. Like even whiskey can kind of do that or a good gin all of a sudden. Like when we were at Leopold's, Leopold's changed my entire opinion on gin and now that's going to be a staple of what I will drink gin-wise is their brand. You know, it's, it's one nice thing about drink. Food and drinks can absolutely blow you away and change your opinion on everything. It also shows you, drinking this, what Sonoma can do with Cab. Because yeah. m- mentally, I kind of dumb it down a little bit. And I think, okay, Napa Valley is Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon. And sh- and Sonoma is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Yeah. There's crossovers, like, you know, places like Carneros. There's a lot of grapes that cross over. Sonoma Valley's got everything in between. But if I'm going to the store to buy a Pinot Noir, I'm not buying Napa. I'm going to go Sonoma. And if I'm going to the store to buy Cabernet, I'm going to buy Napa and not Sonoma, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, you really don't see a lot of Sonoma cab. Um, I think the one that we drank, that Rodney Strong was Sonoma. And yeah. I think there's a couple other inexpensive ones, but most people that I see now are drinking the expensive Napa Cab, obviously, but everybody's reaching into Paso Robles for all their cab right now. Well, I just rarely see Sonoma Cab. Paso grows great cab that is drinkable right now. Yeah. And they're affordable. That's why I often recommend Paso Cabs for people because when they get released, you could drink it right away. Mm-hmm. You don't have to lay it down. We're often nowadays Napa cabs. You do want to lay down for a couple of years because by the time they, when they release them, they're releasing them a little too early in my opinion. Yes. They need a couple of years. Two or three years later, they're, they're, they're drinking perfectly. But if you have a current vintage of, 
you know, Quintessa, Silver Oak, Turnbull, anything up and down Napa, give it one more year, it's going to be 10 times better. Whereas Paso, they're fruit forward, they're approachable, they're juicy, they're ready to drink today. Yes. That's why places like Justin have become so popular. Yeah. Because they're so ready to drink. What's the other one right there? The other big guy, J-Lore. J-Lore's the other one I'm thinking of. I see that a lot. Now, now, when you got Mom Cellars or something in in Sonoma, who's known for their Pinots, I find that their cabs tend to be a little light. Yes. Most of the cabs that I've had out of Sonoma tend to be more like Bordeaux, more like Saint-Emilion, more Merlot, softer style Cabernet. Tannin's not as big, and it's... Smoother, velvetier, yeah. thinner, leaner. So here's my question then, I guess, just because I wonder if it's not that, you know, Napa is so much bigger. Is it because people in Napa are letting it hang longer and they're more commercializing it for the riper, bigger, juicier, high alcohol? And can you do that in Sonoma? Because Sonoma is equally as hot sometimes. There's a few degree swing, but it's not, it's not like comparing a Napa cab to Bordeaux. You know, it's, it's like comparing a Budweiser to like a Budweiser Platinum or whatever. It's just a little bit lighter. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually I have no it. idea what you're talking about. Right I'm just, there. I'm saying, so like if I had, if I have Napa cab, it's huge. It's high alcohol. It's a ton of Oak and it's, we're drinking a Sonoma one right now, and yeah, it's coming across lighter, but is it meant to be, is it done this way because of the way it's been picked, it's going to have that lower alcohol, or can they like let it get overripe the same way Napa does and have the exact same style, even though they're on the other side of the mountain, basically, is I think what I'm the, saying. I think that's something we're going to have to ask some winemakers when they come on the show, because I don't live up there, I don't see, I, I don't see the seasons change, and I don't know the difference between one side of the hill and the other side of the hill. Whereas if you lived up there, you know that, okay, if I go over the hill, it's going to be a little colder. I need a jacket because I'm going over there. Yeah. I know that if I go over there, I'm going to need to maybe bring my umbrella because there's more of a chance of having fog and rain, whereas it's always sunny in my house. Yeah. Well, you know, because like I see I see where people plant cab, and it pretty much works everywhere. Like, I was always kind of told before I ever went to Napa, you know, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir is only grown on Carneros, or excuse me, in Carneros, they only grow Chardonnay and Pinot. Because it's so much colder, it's down at the lower end, you get the fog more, not as much sun, obviously, and that's why it's so good down there. Except I had a Cabernet from Mackenzie Mueller that got up to 15% alcohol, and it was a stunningly good cab, and he's like, the vineyard's right there, like, and he's right at the base of Carneros, so you could clearly grow it anywhere. And it didn't seem that different from a Napa one, with the exception of what would come off of the mountains. Well, I'm... Pretty sure that Misueño does their cab out of Carneros Sonoma. Okay. Maybe Carneros, it's Carneros Napa. That's the other thing that's confusing about our yeah. freaking wine laws. You have Carneros, half of Carneros is in Napa, half of it's in Sonoma. Right. It's like, it's like they almost try and make it more confusing for the average consumer. Like at least Burgundy and Bordeaux say, okay, here's Burgundy, here's Bordeaux. We have Napa Carneros and we have Sonoma Carneros. It's yeah, wait till the new stuff comes out, the far west Sonoma Coast. Because you can be in the Russian River Valley and also be part of Sonoma Coast, Sonoma County. And I think if you're in there, you can also be part of Chalk Hill or Green Valley. So you could choose what you want to use on your label. Well, that's another one is that we had a, a wine we were doing a private label on that was Sonoma Coast. And another person wanted a private label of the same juice and so we did Sonoma Valley because yeah. it fell within the Sonoma Valley appellation. And, and 
consumer one or, or chain one said, hey, wait, you're selling me the same wine you're selling him. I thought this was, was supposed to be an exclusive label. And we said, no, no, no. You got the Sonoma Coast and they got the Sonoma Valley. <laughs> it was the same stuff. Yeah. But we were allowed to use both appellations because of where it fell into, which once again, now we're just making it confusing for the consumer. Yes. And it's doing it's a benefit to me, but it's not a benefit to the public, unfortunately. I wonder if the the dividing line of Sonoma and Napa goes through anybody's property. I mean, obviously it does, but I mean like what vineyard when he walks out, he goes, Well, here's the dividing line. The grapes to my left are Sonoma and the grapes to my right are Napa. And I, then he's obviously got to pay different taxes depending on where he's making it and who's what. That's frustrating. I know Pride Mountain up on uh I think it's on spring. Um, they have that problem. Uh, the dividing line goes right through the winery. I look forward to having more producers from California on. Answering some questions. To answer these questions. Because there's a lot of what ifs. And I could look up in books, but maybe that book was written 10 years ago. And they've changed a lot even since. Yeah. Because this is all a work in progress. I mean, yes. in the last 20 years, all these laws have changed 40 times. Yeah. I mean, they're adding new appellations constantly. They're overlapping appellations. And they're just making it in a way more confusing. Yeah, and if uh, if you're one of those poor dudes who gets just barely caught in the outskirt of an Appalachian, like let's say uh, like Stagsleep is a good one. There's a huge pocket around Stagsleep that's also part of Atlas, but there's a bunch of grapes in there that nobody can be named on because it's just technically Napa Valley. But you miss Stagsleep by 50 feet. That's going to be frustrating. That's hundreds of dollars that you're losing out on, or well, in some cases, thousands and thousands of dollars. I feel bad to be drinking a wine in the show that, somebody cannot buy or they can't really find. I mean, if anybody listens to this around the world, well, mom is mom, mom, M A L M. Now they, they, they can visit him in California. They could visit the tasting room. They could try his wines, but you're not gonna be able to really, I don't know if you you can even go online for it. You have to go online or maybe call him directly. Oh wait, no, you can't go online. (laughs) Well, you can look at the picture that we're going to post and we'll have a picture of the cork in there so you'll be able to see his phone number. You can just call him and blow him up from that. Oh, absolutely. we got to give him the phone number. <laughs> I think if you go to the website, it actually has just his logo and the phone number. I actually was just talking to him on the phone recently, and he said, he's like, he's like I don't think I'm ever going to do my website. He goes, I, I'm doing just fine without it. And that, <laughs> it's kind of the nostalgia of it, the fact that he has really no website. You know, I was over at uh, Joseph Swan uh, in Sonoma. And he had something along the same line. Like, I'm pretty sure the guy has his own grape clone named after him. It was some of the best Pinot I ever had. And you could clearly be like, you know, he. it's not that he doesn't care. He's just like, you know, I'm good. Like, I grow the grapes that I want. I do what I want. I don't need to get big. I don't need to have a big, giant, massive winery. I don't need to spend millions to make this any bigger. Like, I'm good. I'm fine. I like what I'm doing. That's what, to, that's what Brandon seems like. Not to mention, if you can sell out your wine every year without it, yeah, you're fine. And if... He's not in every state. He's not in 49 states with a big sales team where people are like, I need a tech sheet. Can I go on your website to get a tech sheet? Doesn't need it. You know, if you you want to learn about his wine, go visit him. Yeah. If you visit the winery, he's going to be there. Yeah. (laughs) He's he's a mad scientist. (laughs) I mean, it's not like visiting. And honestly, this is why I love personally Sonoma more than Napa. Because Napa often... The wineries have become corporatized. And when you walk into the tasting room, it's nothing but a bunch of people that one person's going to collect your money, one person's going to pour the wine, and another person's going to kick in the ass on the way out the door. <laughs> so it's, it's... Quickly, next person in. Pretty much. You're, it's, a, it's a factory, in a way. Whereas often when you go visit the Sonoma wineries, the person who makes the wine, their, their kids are working the tasting room. Or... When they close, their house is out back and they're going to be barbecuing. They're like, sorry, it's dinner time. We got to close. They're, they're, it's more of a family atmosphere, I think, still in Sonoma, whereas Napa 
there's exceptions to every rule, trust me. Yes. But I think as a general rule, I prefer Sonoma just because it's still family driven. Absolutely. I, I like I like Sonoma for the experience. Um versus Napa's Napa's like Disneyland to me. Like you go to Napa, there's limos everywhere, there's buses running from one place to another. They're giving you big full glasses of wine and they're just in, out, go, 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 go for the next thing. Like they might as well have like a turnkey that's ready to rock and roll while they're out there. And I think the family driven wineries that are in Napa, they're appointment only because they know that they're so commercialized. Yes. That they're like, you know what, we don't want the riffraff just walking through. Yeah. We we just want to if if you want to call me up ahead of time, we'll give you a tour. I know Paul Maz, if you get a tour, it's his it's Dr. Julio Palmaz's kids do the tours. Yeah. You know, it's not just some person they hired off the street. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice having that experience of somebody who's really like intricately involved, A, with the family or B, with the winery. Like they know everything going on there. Versus, you know, if you go to these big guys along the Silverado Trail and what what's that? What's the main highway? Whatever the main highways of Napa, you know, you can hit six different wineries and I swear all the wines will taste the same. You know, I, I didn't get like a crazy experience. And, you know, your story of the winery is cool. But, you know, I do like to try different flavors and, and different styles, basically. And, uh, you don't I don't get that in Napa as much as I do Sonoma. The one thing I did not like about Sonoma is my only complaint. It is so far to go from place to place to place. Obviously, it's a huge county, which is kind of nice, though, because, you know, they're so spread out. And so you get to see a nice scenery, but you know, with how many people drive out there and the tiny little roads and the winding back alleys, it's beautiful. But man, you could spend a long time driving around Sonoma. Oh, uh, one of my last trips there, I went to go visit Thomas George Winery. It was like my GPS was confused. Yeah, trying to get me to that winery. It's like yeah. I'm taking dirt roads. I had to go over a bridge in which it was only a one way bridge where you have to like look to see if someone's coming the other direction, and you have to like pull to the side and let other people come this way. Yes. I know. Actually, the funny thing is, I think I know what bridge you're talking about. <laughs> oh, and you're worried that if there's more than three cars in that bridge, it's not going to hold. It's not going to hold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the difference between you know some of those backwoods area of Sonoma too. But yeah. I love it. That's. That's what it's like driving through Italy or backwards portions of Spain and France, you know? I mean, yeah. these are farmers. They sh it shouldn't be a factory. I love the ones. Uh, I was down with my mom. We were up in the Santa Cruz Mountains and driving around those mountains, and they all of a sudden you would just see a turn here for a winery. And, man, if you were doing more than 30, you were 100% missing that. So you had to backtrack and go into it. And there was, like, horses and chickens and goats, and there was just a random winery that was stuffed into this side of the mountain. I, I love Santa Cruz. I thought that was a really fun place. And it's, it is nice, you know, Napa's obviously a tiny area, and you have Sonoma, Santa Cruz, you know, if you work up into Alexander, if you go crazy far up into Mendocino, you know, you get that family experience where there's not much to it, but they've got a bunch of wines, and they're all crazy different. I, I, I do like that. All right, so we had the 2006 Cabernet Sauvignon from Malm Cellars, and then the other wine we're drinking, I'm going to let you tell me about, because I've never been to this winery, I know very little about it, I've heard of it. That's about as far as I've gone. I think this might be my first expression I've ever tried of theirs. So, I so all right. So first off, this is a 2013 Napa Valley, uh, and it's from Coup de Foudre, and uh, it's French for uh, when lightning strikes. So it's C O U P D E F O U D R E. I don't need. I'm not 100 percent sure if I'm saying the Foudre right or not, but yeah. So it's like Coup d'État, but it says Coup de Foudre, and um, so I. I honestly don't remember where I experienced it. Yeah, the whole label peels off. I don't know if you heard that in the background. 
So Damien just peeled the label off. Oops. No, it, it's on purpose, though. <laughs> it is. So I'm, we got to take a picture of this. This is actually a label on a label. And when you peel the label off, it's when you had it, who you drank it with, on what day it was, so that you always have a memory of when you drank that bottle. I like that a lot. It's pretty that's cool, right? Really freaking we'll, we'll cool. We'll take a picture of that one. Yeah. That's I really like that. I'm, so they that do might... this with all of their bottles. I also have a Pinot Noir as well. Um, this is it's mostly Cab, and then there's little Cab Franc and Petit Verdot in it. But so I again I don't remember where I first heard of it, but I remembered that um, I was lucky enough to meet a Heidi Barrett, and uh, she goes, "Yeah, you know, we're doing a Moose Bouche, um, and it's part of like this collection that we do. And go ahead and check it out. Give like our little tasting room a uh, call." So there was a couple girls I called up, and there was a really nice girl, and she goes, "Yeah." Uh, come meet us up, but don't go to the tasting room. Cause you know, I told her like I was a winemaker in Arizona. I did this, this, and this. And, uh, oh, I remember what it was. I used one of their wines at one of my dinners. Um, one of my wine dinners. That's how I'd heard about it. And uh, I told them that I'd used it there and they go, oh, okay, cool. Well, don't go to our tasting room. That's in, you know, downtown Napa. Uh, why don't you come up to the house? I was like, okay. So they sent me the address that morning. Uh, I took my father and his two friends and, uh, we're driving up Atlas Peak to like, you know, it's it's if you looked at it, it's a five minute drive if you went straight, but it took thirty five minutes to get to it because it was just winding all around Atlas, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So we finally get to this house, gate opens up, uh, and we go inside, and it's overlooking that Childs or Pope Valley on the other side of the what's the East Mountains? Is that the Viacomas? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's the Viacomas. I know nothing of Napa. I'm an Italian guy. Excellent. So it's on the other side, and uh, it's. And, I, and I'm not 100% sure whose it was. It was either Heidi Barrett's partner's house or it was her dad's house. And I met the guy for like a quick second. He said, hey, welcome. Nice to see you, blah, blah, blah. And they have a little tiny tasting room for fun up there with all their brands. Uh, the Patterson, the Coup de Foudre, Heidi Barrett's like three other labels, Moose Bouche, all these things. And uh, so they were nice enough to pour a bunch of wines. We went on top of their deck. We're drinking like rosé up there. You know, they took us into, <laughs> I swear to God, this is insane. They had a wine cellar uh, on the backside of the house. And they, they open the doors, and it's this massive circular, like, Knights of the Round Table-style-looking thing, and just tens of thousands of bottles, probably. And the most, it was just stacks of Scarecrow and Screaming Eagle and French Burgundy and French Bordeaux. Like, I'm just, like, looking at this, like, are you kidding me? Is all this in here? I was actually really worried in 2017. I thought the house burned down, because it was right where that fire went right over the mountain, right towards it. And uh, it luckily survived. But so they poured this one for us. This was a 13 cab. And I thought it was really good. It was actually one of the couple bottles that I took home with me. Because um, it's not the most over-oaked cab I ever had. There's still like some character to it. Obviously, this is baby killer. We're drinking this a bit young. Probably could have aged this for another 10 years or so. But uh, I wanted to try. I wanted to see where it was at. Because I haven't. This is one of those few bottles I was talking about where I have a couple more of. So, and yeah, I, so that's where this came from. I love actually doing that where you age your, you, you buy a six pack of something, you age it for a couple of years, you open one of them. Then you can kind of gauge, okay, how much longer do I want to go? Yeah. With this, I, yeah, you're right. I, I could easily give this wine another three, four years before I drink the next bottle. Whereas I know just from drinking this, there's easily another 15 years before this ever even starts to like turn a corner. I'm surprised. I knew nothing of this label. So this is this a Heidi Barrett wine? Or? This is in her labels. Uh, she does not make this one, I believe. It's just one of like the many that she like. We don't make she it. Consults. Consulting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank I, you. I appreciate also on the label on the back they tell you that there is other things blended into it. A lot of people don't realize 
You can be 75% of a varietal to call it that varietal. So if my wine says Cabernet Sauvignon on it, it only has to be 75% Cabernet. It could be 25% of anything else. And it's, it's common practice. So on the back of this, it actually says that it has a little Cabernet Franc and a little Petit Verdot, which is common Bordeaux blenders, but most people don't put it. And I'm glad they, they just say, hey, you know what? We put a little something else in here too. Which I, I like. I mean, obviously it's over the 85% threshold. I believe it's now by law in California. It's not a federal law. It's California law. It's 85%. See, I thought only Oregon had made that law. No. So the way it works is... Uh, I, this is coming out of the back of my memory, but I do know if it's you're going to say the vintage, it has to be 95%. If you're saying the grape varietal from a designated AVA, it has to be 90%. So to say Napa Valley cab, you got to have 90% of it be from Napa Valley. But I do believe that it's 85% now in California. I mean, well, at least you know what it is. But you could see it. You know, you bend it down a little bit. It's got that little tinge of purple into it, which gives away the fact that there's Petit Verdot in it. Tinge of purple, my ass. <laughs> it's, it's a little purpley. It, it's very vibrant on the purple to me. I mean, it's something that just kind of shocked. When you poured it originally, I was like, okay, this one's very dark looking in the glass. This one was pretty purpley in the glass. I mean, like purple markery. Yeah. I make, up, I make up words as we go along. <laughs> it's just yeah. what happens. Is this number 14, by the way? I feel bad. I just put this on there. Ep- episode wise? Yeah. This will be episode number 15. Bam. You sure? All right. I know. We're moving Crap. up. Can you believe it? 15. We've actually recorded more than this because we, we recorded 10 episodes before we ever even started posting them. Yeah. All right. There we go. Episode number 15. I wrote on a thing. The who, where, when, why. <laughs> Something that people do is they remove labels from bottles of wine. They save them in scrapbooks. Yeah. That's why this and, is awesome. And it's a pain in the ass sometimes. People try to soak them. They're trying to steam them. You ruin them. And that's why I really appreciate the fact that their label is removable. And on the back of it, it has a little thing where you could say who, what, where, when, how. That is brilliant that they do that. Little, little, little things like it's that. little things, right? Yeah. It's one of those things that the average consumer is going to see and they're going to remember and they're going to want to buy your wine again because of it. Winemakers, they forget the consumer truly does enjoy that thing. And that's actually part of your long-term branding of your label. You know, I'm really Im- impressed by... Obviously, Brandon Malms is, is fantastic. I, I love the way he built his wine. I'm impressed by his Cuda because it comes out of Cal- the grape that these have are uh, from Calistoga. So obviously a much warmer back of the pocket and uh, back of the back end of Napa. And like the tannin on it, at the very first sip I took, obviously, was real dry. Or excuse me, not real dry, but real, you know, like it pulled the moisture out. But now that it's kind of opened up, the tannins aren't like overbearing. They're there, but it's not ruining the drink. And even this is only, you know, it's barely, barely a six-year wine. I could age this wine another 10 years without even thinking twice. Drinking it today, I'm so happy. We were in uh, California not too long ago for a release party. They were releasing the cabs, and it was like a year and a half after they were picked. And almost everything was, to me, almost undrinkable. Yeah. Because they were just so aggressive and angry, and the tannins were integrated into the bottles where... If I bought this bottle right now, I would want this with food, without food. I can have this as a cocktail. I can have this with my friends. I can have this in the sun. I can have this. This It's so universally friendly right now. And that's weird coming from me because you know me. I'm not a huge California Napa cab guy. But no, it's you're not, really not. But it's not over the top. Everything is so integrated into the bottle. If somebody walked into a store and saw the 2013 on the shelf... I would recommend buying every bottle you can right now. Yeah, I this to me, as someone who does drink a lot of Napa Cab, 
It's like our roller coaster thing. We're right. We could see the the peak coming. Click, the, click, yeah, click, 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 yeah. click, click, click. As you're like going up it, like you're yeah. Like, <laughs> and we see and we know like oh here it comes. Like all right, we're about to get ready. It's, but I think if I'd have given this another year or two, it'd be like right at that top. Like right, it's at the peak, and you can look around, and see everything before you fall off. When the clicking stops, and you know that you're, <laughs> yeah, you click, 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 click. Yeah, and you're click. like uh oh, here it comes. <laughs> that's that's where this wine to me is. It's still clicking though. It's still going up the yeah. hill. But it's it's getting to the top. I got yeah. a, it's got a beautiful view. I can see the rest of the roller coaster ahead of me. I know there's a loop de loop and, and a what the yeah. fuck around the corner. <laughs> I know that's a right there. However, it's not at the beginning stages and it's definitely not I yeah, think it's, it's not aggressive. It's not it's not like you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're drinking, and you're like, Oh my god, my mouth is shy from all ten. It, it's well done. The oak is not overpowering. Like I actually get fruit out of this wine. I get yes. a little cinnamon and a little bit of clove kind of from the oak that's on it. But I taste the fruit first, which I really I that's why I like cabs like this. Because it's not like I'm going into it going, Oh great, this is mostly an oak bomb. Right, but I'm not, and I'm also not having a blueberry pie soaked in an yeah, oak, yeah. soaked in it with an oak stick. The other like. thing is the alcohol is only fourteen eight. It says on it, so they didn't overripe it like crazy, you know. Because considering thirteen was one of the best years Napa's had. I mean, not that they have bad years at this point, but so I mean, what's Mom's? Mom says his is fourteen six, and Kudafood is fourteen eight. So for me, when you're producing wine, and the producer has a round number, I think they make that shit up. You get a swing. When when you you get a depending on where you're at, the laws allow you to go up to a, either a percent or a percent and a half above or below, but yes. based on where it's at. I think some people just throw fourteen five on all their labels just to hit that threshold. Yes. So they so that when it hits fourteen five, they know they have a percent and a half above or below. Uh, it's one percent above fourteen. If it's below fourteen, it's one and a half percent. When I start seeing odd numbers when i see it be 14.3 when i see it being 14.9 i have a feeling that they're actually testing it when every vintage says 14.5 or 14.0 yeah well you're full of shit you also yeah yeah (laughs) definitely so yeah you're vented in bottles and cellared in bottle they say uh 14.5 or 13.5 or whatever the people who hit a number 14.8 on a place like that I would imagine that they're definitely closer to that actual number than farther away. So like Brandon Moms, he's got 14.6 on it. There's no way that's 15.6 because with the taste, and as this is going to sound weird, but as light as this cab is, it's definitely doesn't have the alcohol breaking through. And the same thing with the Cuda Fudra. The alcohol's not, I'm not getting the alcohol. You know, I had a Kerner the other day that had 13.5 alcohol, but I could feel the alcohol. So I was kind of like, there's no way, like this has to be above 14. <laughs> Every state, and they had the thirteen five <laughs> coming from the distribution side. Every state has different laws, so in some states, they have to pay more taxes when their wine is above fourteen and a half percent. So by putting fourteen point five, your wine will actually be on a shelf cheaper than if your wine said fourteen point six. As soon as you put fourteen point six, then you are in a higher tax bracket, so you'll actually be more expensive because the weird laws and based on the states. Yeah, so states obviously have a little bit difference, but feds just changed the other day. It's funny bringing this up because I had this conversation yesterday with the owner of the winery. So it just changed. So from eighteen for this vintage of eighteen nineteen, you used to pay your taxes at fourteen percent. Fourteen percent and higher was considered a fortified wine, and it brought your taxes up roughly 50 like 50 cents again we have an exemption because we're small winery so i don't know what it is for the big guys 
But this year it changed. They changed it from 14 to 16%. That is a huge jump for alcohol on federal taxes, basically. It's going to save people a ton of money. Good, because so, usually they're yeah. costing us a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, it's not like the prices are going to change by any means. It just means a winery gets to keep more money. Yeah. It's, that's how it works with taxes, man. They go, oh, we're going to cut these taxes, but the prices don't change. I know from filling out compliance forms for multiple states that it really, that the alcohol level was so important in what the consumer pays. Also, bubbles. You got to pay more for bubbles. So much more. And it's just sparkling wine. It's, it's crazy how expensive. It's like $1.50 more a gallon. It's stupid that they actually make people pay more because it's bubbles. Like, hey, it's just a way to get more tax money. Yeah. Maybe because they just love, they know people like bubbles are going to buy it anyways. Yeah. I imagined it back in the day it was probably a way to, as like a slight tariff on champagne, most likely, maybe Italian Prosecco. But now that everybody's making sparkling wines, they need to readdress that. And I don't know if that applies for beer as well. Because honestly, if you're having a still beer, it's left over from the party. It's probably disgusting. Yeah, beer producers probably have it the best right now. It's freaking easy to make beer. It's You can put it out every single year. It's not taxed as high as your wines are taxed. Like It's got to be really Everybody easy. drinks beer. Yeah. There's no occasion where a beer isn't called for. Like I only drink wine with food. Or when you're breathing. Yeah. So when I wake <laughs> up, I drink champagne. Yeah. No, like I only drink wine for the most part here when I drink wine, but it's not my casual drinker. I'll, I'll drink beer, dinner, sporting events, out at the lake, going down the river, you know, anniversaries, everything. Anniversaries. So, <laughs> celebrations. Sorry, I had to throw it in there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't drink liquor almost at all. Like I'd like to try it. I really love to try it, but I never just go, you know what? I'm going to have a glass of rum right now. It never, ever happens. I only drink cocktails if somebody who is a million times better at me at making a drink can make me one. That's why beer is the universal drink it for every occasion kind of a thing. When I get home from work and it's a hot day and I need some, I just want to have something to relax because I got off work, a beer is perfect. Mm -hmm. It always works. Whereas often I want wine with food. I will drink a glass of wine sometimes when I get home, but typically it's a beer. Yeah. It's usually always a beer. Everybody's got their beer fridge or their six pack stuffed in there. There's always like beer on hand. But going back to beer producers, man, you guys are lucky because if you have a bad batch, you could always just dump that shit down the drain and start over. Whereas yeah, a wine right? producer cannot do that. Ooh. You got to find a way to sell that. You have one vintage per year. And if you have a bad batch of beer, you can just make a new can and sell it off as some light, crappy, whatever label. Or, you know, uh, I, I wish I could remember what brewery it was. It was in Texas. And we went to it and they had their bad, it was their bad batch beer. Yeah, it was the triple B, it was the bad batch beer. And they basically said, hey, this isn't what we meant it to be. Uh, he's used the wrong hops, he used the wrong barley, it got too hot, whatever. And they say five bucks a pitcher and it's here till it's gone. And they occasionally, they make so much beer that occasionally they have that. So everybody gets the bad batch beer. It's five bucks. You know, everybody gets a pitcher. They basically break even or make a couple bucks on it and everybody gets cheap and expensive beer. Well, what happened with uh, uh, New Belgium Brewing is they released a beer that went sour in the bottle or went sour. It was sour when they released it. And they realized that after it got released, and they recalled it. Huh, this okay. is before sours got popular because uh. it was a bad bottle. It went sour. Well, people enjoyed it; they loved it. And then the collectors tried to buy up as much as they could before it all got before the, before it all got recalled. Years later, now 
new Belgian brewing company releases their Lips of Faith series because that was the beer that went sour. And now really? this is their one. Yeah, yeah. Lips of Faith is yeah. their it's like their tribute to sour beer because it was the one that got recalled because it was sour. And now they make it sour on purpose. Yeah. It was a mistake that turned out to be really good. I've never been a fan of sour beers. I just I know you like it. Sarah loves them. I just I'm just not a sour beer. So I don't like IPAs right now, but there's a brewery next to my house that does a sour IPA that I'm in love with. Is it Ren? Ren House. They do it. It's a raspberry sour IPA that is delicious. My goal is in the next month or two to have the people from Ren House on the show. That'd be awesome. Those guys are killing it right now. They are, you know, and and what they're doing is similar to what Brennan Mom is doing. Small batch. If you're going to buy it this year, you're going to buy this year. You know what? Next year, I might not make it. I might not yeah. have my Cabernet the next year. It's just because I have some. I got some from this guy. I aged it with this. I did it this way. He kind of does that with his wines. Or he did some like aromatic whites from Monterey. I don't know <laughs> if he still does those. He got a hand on his vineyard for a couple of years as a lease. And he produced those. And they were awesome. Yeah. And they were sought after. And poof, they're probably gone now. So that's one thing that's so frustrating is the fact that if I find something and go, man, I love that. And they're like, well, you better get it because it's about to go away. Like McFate did that. McFate had a beer when they first were in their small thing, when they were just fate. And they were up on Shea and Scottsdale Road with that little, little bitty tiny thing. And uh, Sarah and I went in there one day, and they had an American IPA. And it was they used it in this one style, and I loved it. It was an IPA that I really, really enjoyed. And then I went back a week later, and they go, man, if you want some, you better get a growler because we don't have any more. And I was like, oh, no, I'll wait. You know, and I went back a month later. It's like, are you guys making it again? The guy's like, no, no, like we don't, we're not making that again. Like that was it. That was the batch. He's probably not going to make it again. He didn't like it. And I was like, shit, I loved it. I really enjoyed that. I can't ever have it again. What Rent House is doing is they do small batch releases every day, pretty much, or every other day. Mm-hmm. When it's gone, it's gone. The next beer is going to come out in two or three days. Yeah, the experimentals, basically. And and that's it. And they will go back a month later, two months later, be like, hey, we're re-releasing this. We just did it again. But sometimes we'll be under a slightly different name. Like, they just released Triple IPA that they had done a while ago, but the name of this one is called This Time It's Different. And that's actually the name of the beer. So, because it's slightly different than the last time they made yeah. it. They, I like the fact that every time I go in there, it's a different beer list. I love Four Peaks. I do like that. Four Peaks has been our staple brewery in this state forever. But when I go into Four Peaks, I know that I'm going to get Kilt Lifter. I'm going to get 8th Street Ale. I'm going to get Raj IPA. Peach. It's the peach. It's the same thing every time. True. Whereas when Renhouse comes on the show, he could bring 10 beers, come on six months later. None of those beers are even produced at the brewery, and you'll never hear them again. <laughs> might forget that he did. He's like, what did I do? Oh, yeah, yeah. that one? All right. And they're doing a lot of collaboration projects. They're doing stuff with other with coffee producers, with other breweries, with other That's houses. That's what I do like that. That's one thing that liquor and beer can get away with, is those crazy experiments of coffee, of taking some root from some country and mix it in. You really can't do that with wine. Wine fuck is no. Wine. You get one time once a year. That's it. You don't want to fuck that up. Yeah, like, like, I mean, I've experimented in my subtle ways with fruit-infused wines, but they're always sweet. You know, I have a dry hop Gewürz demeanor just for fun. I can... I carbonate something for fun, but like I'm not about to make some coffee-driven whatever. I mean, I've seen bourbon-aged like Zinfandels recently, and I'm just like, no, I'm not going to drink this. It's a gimmick. It's a 100% gimmick, and there's nothing coming from it. If you're a producer and you do bourbon-aged wine, stop. Just turn in your wine license. I'm done. (laughs) Finished. Don't care. 
Yeah, like it's, it's yeah. I, but they're sis- aiming for those those flavored consumer people. Honestly, my sister sent me a bottle of some wine she was drinking that was like aged in a bourbon barrel, and she she loved it. So I, yeah, I guess I'm. I, it, I can't taste it. It's my it's opinions, but it's it's wine. You get one shot once a year to showcase your vintage, the sunshine, the rain, the winemaker, everything in this little glass. And and that's it. Like you can you can manipulate beer and spirits and everything else, but let wine be wine. That's just that's my opinion. Yeah. And I you know what the one thing I'm I, I feel really bad for and I, I don't like it is that wine is becoming a huge commodity. Like, I, I don't really see it as much with liquors. Like, obviously, there's the Pappy Van Winkles, and there's a few other ones. But, like, the the Louis Thirteenth, you can get at any store. Nobody's rushing to spend that $1,500 a bottle kind of thing because it's not like it's rare. The Pappies, yeah, obviously, there's a couple other ones out there. But when it comes to wine, you know, if you're one of the lucky people who can afford the Von Romney at, what, 10000 a bottle or a Screaming Eagle at 2000 okay, fine. But then a big conglomerate comes in, buys it up, commercializes it, and now it's just a commodity that they don't care about. They no longer care about the product as much because they just see that it makes money. They don't want to spend the money on some guy who's willing to be in the vineyard from the day that they prune it to the day that it buds and gets picking and checking every day and the weather forecast. They're like, whatever, it's our vineyard site. Just you know, put it in a bottle and sell it for two grand because people will buy it. When, when you're producing a wine in mass amounts, you want it to taste the same every single year. Yeah. There's things they do to make it taste the same. It's one of the parts of the wine business that is disheartening to me. It yeah. does drive me crazy. And I get it. You have to produce something at a, a lower level. But when you go to European nations and you're still buying the three euro bottle of Bordeaux in France, it's still delicious. There's a, something happening in the wine business. It's kind of ripped my soul from me over the last couple of years and it is it's the com- it's turning wine into a commodity yeah now there's people that will always be a special product and those are the people i want to hang out with yeah. and i don't want to surround myself with but you know there's certain wines out there that are produced in a way that they're not real they're not they're almost like fake honestly like this little bottle of mom that we have here he made like maybe a pallet, which is like 50 cases of it. Yeah, it's barely maybe. two, two barrels bottles at most. Yeah. yeah, maybe two two barrels. That's all that will ever be done in this 2006. And to be honest, we might be drinking the last bottle on the earth of this bot of this, this wine. This slight chance, yeah. There's probably a monstrous chance this is the last bottle of this that anybody will ever consume. And that's special. That'll never happen with the apothic reds of the world. <laughs> nope. That'll never happen with the Behringer White Zivendels of the world. No. Drink it now. Great. Spend, give me your money. You get a buzz. It's finished. Yeah. I don't drink wine for a buzz. I drink wine because it inspires me. Because it, it makes me think about new, fun things. It gets me excited to hang out with my friends. It gives me a reason to hang out with my friends. Like The amount of great ideas we've come up with drinking a great bottle of wine and the amount of nights we've just laughed our asses off drinking a great bottle of wine is worth every penny I've put into those bottles of wine. Absolutely. I mean, there's it's definitely one of the best things about having friends that appreciate wines and even drinks in general is you could sit around and just appreciate the different nuances. Like you smell clove, I smell cinnamon. You taste blackberries, I take raspberries. Like everybody's got a different thought and you keep talking about it. But the one thing that is fun to do with wine, I've never shown up once anywhere with a beer and been like, guys, I got the super rare beer. Check it out. There's only one thing. Because you know what? I'm not going to share that with anybody because there's one beer. 
but I can have this wine and pour it for three of us and we all get a taste of it so we could try something really cool. And it's something that you share, you know, and, and there's liquors that you could obviously do that too with, you know, there's a lot of people drinking certain liquors with each other, but not that many, like there's, there's scotches and some whiskeys and I mean, uh, maybe the holy crap mezcals and tequilas, but wine, man, wine's universal with everybody. I don't know what you were doing in 2006, but some guy was on a vineyard site looking at these grapes in 2006. He picked these grapes. He looked at them like who won the Super Bowl in 2006? Probably the Patriots. Probably the Patriots. No, they didn't. They won it in 2005. I only know that because uh, we need to talk about the Bordeaux that we drank. But uh, after that, I don't know. But in 2006, I graduated high school in 2005. So it was my first year. I was a freshman in college. I was 19 years old in 2006. Yeah, or 20. I don't know what it was. Some 19, 20-year-old person was sitting on a hill looking at these grapes, picked these grapes. It was very special. Like They spent the whole, they spent six months watching these grapes mature before they picked them to go into this bottle to then sit in my back room for years to us drinking them on a podcast. Yeah, you got it on a pallet, what, in 2010? Probably 2011. Okay, so you got the pallet. And he made everybody sold it, moved it. You drank some with Brandon. You knew Brandon. We didn't even know each other in 2011. Oh no! So it was. It would have been right after the recession. It would have been like eight or nine. Yeah, I got this bottle. So we didn't know. And you made that last all the way up till here we are, ten years later after you got it, and we're drinking it for our podcast. This wine has moved to four or five different houses with me. That's another thing about wine and commodities. You know, if you move a whiskey bottle anywhere, it's not going to change, you know, until you break that bottle, that's going to stay the same. But if you're one of those guys who just buys a Burgundy or a Screaming Eagle and you're constantly selling it to another person, that person's selling it. And that's all that bottle is being used for is to be sold, to make money. Who knows if that wine's even any good at this point? Maybe it was in some dude's house in a professionally done cellar, but then he decided to sell it to a guy who kept it in his basement. Then another guy bought it, and then he drove it from the house he was at to here in the middle of summer. And that bottle moved so damn much that even if you were the one guy who goes, holy crap, I really can't wait to try that bottle. Well, maybe it's bad because the fifth person who bought that expensive bottle stored it terribly. You know, that's, that's, that is a, that's one thing that I, I find unfortunate and it's, it's just the nature of, you know, a free market is people can buy it and sell it and do whatever they want with it. But and it's, it's, it sucks sometimes. It sucks with a product that can die and that it's limited on. The thing that blows me away, I'm going to talk about this probably every episode is literally the fact that this is juice from a fruit that was grown 13 years ago. Yeah. And we're enjoying it very happily right now. It's delicious. I don't know any other fruit or any other juice from any other fruit on the planet that you would want to drink 13 years later and enjoy. Find me a liquid besides water that could be 13 years old sitting in your glass that you're going to be excited to consume or any other food product. Everything goes bad. Honey is the only thing that lasts forever. Yeah, like when it can com- you can you smoke weed thirteen years later after? I bust? think it will be pretty bad. <laughs> it will definitely yeah. be bad. I don't know if it'll work or not. It might it might hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody's gonna hate you. Hey guys, I got this fourteen year old bag of weed. Like here, try try this orange juice thirteen years later. Well, like, you'll get drunk probably. You might or, or poisoning. Not really sure which. There's really something magical about wine, and it this is what intrigues me about this product. Every single day I consume it. If I'm going to have a Riesling that's 50 years old 
Some guy 50 years old picked that grape. Everybody who touched it's probably dead. Yeah. Realistically. I mean, the amount of wines I've, I, I've, ha- I've had a handful of wines in my life that have seen world wars. Yeah. Have survived world wars. And I was able to consume it. Yeah. Like there's something special about that. You can't do that with anything else. And that really is what makes wine special. No, you really can't. I mean, even with the liquors that are in the, the 25, 30 or whatever, they're all blended up of other things. But, but it's a distilled product. That's what I was going to say. You're, 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 you're now distilling it. You're, you're, it's the steam off of it yeah. being recondensed. It's not the same product. Yeah. This is the juice yeah, of a beer grape doesn't make it. that was squeezed. Yeah. Like it's, it, it blows me away. And that's why the, the commodity people drive me a little crazy sometimes. Yeah. I understand there's a place for that because people need to start somewhere. A 20-year-old person with a limited budget needs to start drinking wine. Somehow they can't start drinking expensive wines. They can't start drinking certain things. You need a a gateway drug in the wine. Your gateway drug might be Boone's Farm. It might be Mad Dog. It might be Behringer. It's definitely some of my summer rain. (laughs) It might be summer rain. That's that's a gateway. You know what? You have that for two, three, four years. You're like, this is fucking amazing. I love this. Then all of a sudden you're like, that's a little sweet. I want to try something else. You might get into Rieslings. Then you're like, all right, now I'm going to get into Gruners. Now I'm going to try red wines. I'm going to get into Zweigelts. Now I'm going to try something else. I'm going to get into Pinots, then Cabernet. Then you know what? I'm going to go back to Riesling, but I want to try aged Riesling. I want to try something with age. And this is the progression of the wine drinker. Yeah, and you know what also is one thing that goes great with wine is the fact that as you age and your taste bud change, it affects your wine. Because if your taste bud change and you don't like whiskey anymore, you're not going to drink whiskey anymore. I don't know what you're going to do from that point and whatever. You know, if you've been, if you're a gin drinker now and all of a sudden one day you stop drinking gin because your taste buds change, well, that's it. You move on to maybe a rum or maybe a whiskey. I don't know. But with wine, it's like, okay, my taste bud didn't change and that I like wine. It's just I don't like Pinot Noir anymore. So therefore, I'm going to try Merlot and then maybe do a cab or go backwards. I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I'm constantly trying new wines that I am loving so much more and more and I'm not liking it. Like I'm, I'm officially slowly drifting away from Napa Cab. I've had a lot. I've had a lot of Napa Cab. And I think I'm at a point where I know who I like, but I know where I like. I know I like Mountain Cab. That's that's what I like. There's great stuff in Rutherford. There's great stuff in, o- stuff in Oakville. And I've had some good ones, but I know what I like. So now, you know what I'm going to try? I'm going to move down to a new grape that's out there. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, you gave me Brunello. Now I've, I really need to dive into Chianti and Montepulciano. I think that's... Maybe direction I'm going to go. Well, the only way you can figure out that you're kind of over cab or you want to change is to drink 50 of them. Yeah. And once you drink 50 of them, you're like, all right, I've experimented with it. I've seen it all. I've seen what I wanted to see. Now I want to try something different. But you know what? Going back to that record of that song you listened to 20 years ago. Absolutely. Will bring back those memories. Yeah. It's you just smile when I say that. It's it makes I, have, so I have a comment much, when you're done. I'm, but it yeah. makes so much sense that... Hey, you know what? I might I might have been over listening to hip hop from the '90s, but 20 years later, I'm like, fuck! I love hip hop from the '90s. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> you know why? Because you just nailed something that's happened to me recently. I listened to nothing but like EDM and a little rock, or excuse me, a little rap for the last like two years, and now I'm starting to listen to rock again. I I think I told you this. I finally went and listened to all of Led Zeppelin. I for first time. I never listened to Led Zeppelin. I. You know, I knew Stairway to Heaven, I knew the songs, but I never listened to it. And now I'm going back listening to these old songs, and I'm like, holy crap, this was so good. I love it. And now I can listen to a Greta Van Fleet and appreciate that a lot more. 
And so it's it is like wine with me. Like I, I like these things now, and I'm lucky enough to old to know older people who have old Napa wines from like the '90s and 2000s, like we did our Peter Michael and stuff. And I love them. But I'm definitely drifting. It's time for a new. It's a new change. It's you know maybe start doing Oregon Pinot. You know what I love recently? I, I don't know if you've ever had this. I finally had an Aligote. Holy crap! Awesome. One of the few red grapes. No. Alicante is white. No, wait. I'm thinking of Alicante. You're thinking of Alicante. <laughs> no, Alicante is the other white wine in Burgundy. Got it. Oh, it's so good. I never had it. Todd Sawyer from Atlas poured it for me. He goes, you got to try this. I thought it was a white Burgundy. And I was like, this doesn't taste like a Chardonnay. And he's like, it's not a Chardonnay, you idiot. It's Alicante. So whole, I, whole new thing. So Brendan just texted me <laughs> back. Is that actually his number still? Yes. Right? Still same, same cell phone number. Right, I'm going to text him right now. Too. Do it. Text him while I'm reading this. So Perfect. I... I I sent him a text when we started recording this with a picture of the bottle going, why not open this? Let's see what happens. His response was, wow, I want to be there. I haven't seen that bottle in 10 years. This was one of those random one-offs that he did many years ago. I think this was the first cab he ever made. I mean, he was he's pretty young as a winemaker too. It's kind of fun to actually be texting the winemaker while we're drinking his wine and have him responding back to us with, man, I really wish I was there. So, Brendan, I'll be honest. We wish you were here, too. So he will be on the show at some point. We're going to find a way to get him out here. I know he's been listening to it. So big shout out to Brendan Malm, M-A-L-M Sellers. I'd say go check out his website, but he doesn't yeah, go, really if you, want a, if you want a picture of his website, <laughs> go to his website. And that's about it. But I'll tell you, go visit Healdsburg. It's one of my favorite towns. The barbecue joint there is amazing. Go hit at the barbecue place. It's like old town barbecue or something like that. And then go visit his winery. He's got two or three wineries that are in the industrial complex right next to him. If you visit him, you know he's going to be there. There's no one else that works there, I don't think so. <laughs> Funny, he's going to listen to this and be like, hey, I was texting those guys while they were recording. I know them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel like I'm texting a celebrity, but he's texting a celebrity back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll put us in that category. I'm telling you, this might be the last bottle in existence we're drinking tonight. Oh, well, I guess we got to get another another time. That's what's special about wine, man. You can always get just another vintage. Granted, it'll be different. At least you could see what somebody was doing with it. It is one thing where you can look at somebody like, what'd you do differently this year? Oh, well, instead of using this French oak, I used that French oak. Oh, I decided to let it hang a little bit longer. Oh, my neighbor drove a tractor into the field and took out three of my rows. So I had, to, I had to shorten it up what I did this year. So I will tell you, in the future, we'll do more focused podcasts based on Napa, Sonoma, Carneros, Rutherford, Pritchard Hill, like all the different little appellations. But this was just kind of fun to sit here and yeah. rap with you and talk with you for an hour and a half about just random stuff and... Enjoy a couple of really good bottles. I'm really impressed by the Kuda Fuja right now. Like, it's drinking perfect right now. The Malm just blew me away. Like, I thought that would be dead. Honestly, I thought we were going to open it, and I'd have to open something else. This is sat next to 50 other wines that didn't hold up. No. At all. Stored the same exact way. Even the Caviola we opened was stored the same exact way as this. Yeah. That Caviola was dead. It is crazy because it, how many times have we opened wines that have been back in that same box, the same room, same shelving, everything, and they're just nuked? I could open the 11 other bottles that were in the same case as this, yeah, and they'd be done. Five of them would be toast. So a lot to be said about where this came from, who touched it, and everything, because it wasn't stored properly, but it was, it's been drank properly. That's for sure. I'm super happy about this. We uh, Time to eat some tacos, man. Yeah. I mean, so my final thoughts are, Brandon, dude, you do a good job. You know I really like your product. You're crazy. I mean, I watched you climb up 
a eight shell or eight story. What is it like eight barrels high to like pull out some Zinfandel so you could pour for me? So you got a cool operation, man. I think he did a great job with his cab. It's funny. He's texting me. So I'm actually going to read his texts on the show. He goes, it was an old vineyard in Dry Creek. It was next door to Raffinelli. It's actually not there anymore. And it was planted in the 1960s. Oh, they tore it out. That they sucks. tore it out. So another reason why we're probably drinking one of the last bottles of this in existence, which makes it even more special. Yeah, that's too bad. Man, that's really cool, though. It's, it's nice to have an experience like that. It's another benchmark in the uh, the podcast. It is. We got that. My, I'm loving the Cuda Fudra. I'm excited to take this, uh, go have dinner with this and see how this is opening up since we only drank half the bo- both half bottles. So we still have like three more hours on them, see what happens. But the Cuda Fudra, I was real happy with. I think I know where you're at with it. It's your style where it's not crazy oaky. It's not so tannic. It's big and it's not that yeah. Napa Valley like. You're totally right. Stop. This this is a little more in your area. This is kind of what I like. I definitely would have loved to see like maybe one more year on it, but I want to taste. It's fantastic. I want to taste the wine, not just the barrel. Yes, that's a great way of putting that. Yeah, and this you get you get the wine in this one, and the barrel is uh like the uh, the seasoning kind of. All right, let's wrap this up and go eat some tacos. Let's do it. Thanks, uh, buddy. Enjoy the outro music. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Love you guys. Later. Ha 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 ha